it's been said that if you're running from God, you need to know that he's chasing you down. In regards to the prophet Jonah, O.S. Hawkins said, since Jonah would not listen to God, God had to speak through a storm, through the sailors, and then through a fish. Again, know that if you are running, you need to know that God is also chasing you down. Last week as we began our sermon series on Jonah the reluctant prophet, we saw that God spoke to his prophet. God sent his prophet to the city of Nineveh to proclaim a message to them of repentance, to say that they needed to repent, to turn from their sin, to return to God, or else God was going to judge their city. But Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were the enemies of Israel. God's prophet did not want to see God's enemies repent and be saved. He wanted to see them judged. So God told him to go one direction. He went the exact opposite direction, found himself on a ship, found himself in the midst of a storm, having to come clean with the sailors. He knew the storm was because of him. He told them to cast him overboard, that then the sea would be calm for them. They cast him overboard. And then we... See, even in that, even in his rebellion, that God taught those heathen sailors about himself. And we see the sailors making vows to God, fearing the Lord. Even in the prophet's rebellion, God still used it for his glory. And as Jonah's been thrown overboard, chapter 1, verse 17 reads, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now when it says the Lord prepared a fish, if you notice in your Bibles it's all caps, L-O-R-D, and that is because the Hebrew, it is Yahweh. When God spoke to Moses and Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? God said, I am that I am. That is Yahweh. We get this name for God that the Hebrews wanted to be so careful that they did not um, take the Lord's name in vain. They didn't give us the, the vows. In fact, in the writings of the scribes, they would put Adonai in place of Yahweh. They wanted to be so careful with God's name. This is God's covenant-keeping name. This is God saying, I am who I am, and I am the God who keeps his word. I am the one who was and is and will be. I am the faithful God, the creator of all things, the one to whom all will give an account. And this is the Lord. He provided great fish. Another way to translate that word provided is ordained or appointed or prepared. God was in complete control. And just like he appointed a storm, he appointed a great fish. God was in control even in the midst of his prophet's rebellion. The great fish, we don't know exactly what kind of fish this was, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that Greek word that is translated there for great fish is, is what we translate into English from Greek as whale. And so that's why it's commonly become known that this was a whale or understood that it was a whale. The Hebrew doesn't specify it was a whale. It was just a great fish. But the Septuagint uses a Greek word that we translate as whale, and so we often refer to it as a whale that has swallowed him up. And he's in the belly of this whale for how long? Three days and three nights. Now here's what people have done with this over the years. 
Liberals have scoffed at this and said, there's no way that could happen. That is impossible. And there are those that want to strip the miracles out of the Bible and just get to what's behind these stories, the the truth or the moral that is being told. On the other side, there are people that feel like, well, you know, this is a a miraculous thing that we've got to somehow uh, see proven in today's day and age in order to validate the Bible, and so they look for stories of people that maybe have been swallowed by a fish and spit up and something similar that has happened to validate what God's Word says. Neither one is needed. All that is needed is to understand the God that spoke and created all things determined to prepare a storm and a fish, and in a miraculous event, he kept his prophet alive in a whale for three days and three nights. That's all that's needed. It's by faith to understand that God is miraculously intervening in his creation. It's no more miraculous than God saying, let there be light. And light came into being. And here he is appointed for his prophet to be kept alive in the belly of a great fish for three days and for three nights. This is a miracle. Jesus called it a sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For three days and three nights he's in there. Now, that's, that's one long time out, isn't it? You know, when you get in trouble, when you're a kid, especially if you go sit in the corner, those 15 minutes feel like forever. If you were a kid and you got in trouble and you didn't get to go to recess or maybe you sit in detention, man, that 30 minutes, that hour, you just, you're watching that clock go by and it just seems to go on for Jonah, for three days and three nights, that's quite a bit of time to just sit and think about it. You know, God has a way of knowing just how long we need to wait. Abraham waited for 25 years for the child of promise. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they were ready for the promised land. You may be in a child of, you may be in a season of waiting. I want you to understand that there is never a time where God abandons his children. And if you are in a time of waiting, you are in the time that God has appointed for you. And he is present in that time of waiting. He was not absent from Jonah's life. And he's not absent from your life. He was in absolute control, sustaining Joseph in the belly of the fish. And then chapter 2, verse 1 reads, And Jonah prayed to the Lord. I bet he did, right? He prayed to the Lord, his God. From the fish's belly. Now, before we get on to his prayer, I want to point out a few things. There are two prayers. I read one commentator this week that really opened my eyes to something. There are two prayers in the book of Jonah. And if you take these two prayers together, you'll see that both prayers come after someone has shown mercy or or in the midst of being shown mercy. God is praying. uh, God is, excuse me, Jonah is praying. And in the sense, the whale is an act of God's mercy because he could have died at sea. So God is just kind of holding him in the belly of a fish in in an act of mercy. And and he's calling out to God and he begins to thank God and he begins to praise God in in a sense saying, God, you have saved me and I know that you're going to deliver me and I know you're going to raise me up. But later on, when Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches, and that whole city is converted. I mean, think about this. An entire group of people give their lives over to the Lord in repentance. And Jonah, instead of rejoicing, he gets so angry about it, he's just ready to die. And when we take these two prayers together, 
what really is being said tongue-in-cheek through the book of Jonah is that Jonah really doesn't get it. His prayer here is a prayer of selfishness. He's not praying the prayer that we're about to read because of a love for God. He doesn't pray the prayer we're about to read because of a love for the people of Nineveh. This is a very selfish prayer where he's wanting to save his own skin. Now he prays truth. He prays God's word back to God, but it is self-righteously motivated. And that becomes crystal clear next week when we look at his second prayer where the prophet is angry about people getting saved. And so we see there's really not a heart change that's taken place in Jonah. He's still a reluctant prophet, but at least he knows some things. He knows there is a God. He knows God's word, and he at least knows how to pray God's word back to him. Even in his self-righteousness, even in his messed upness, he's praying, and God hears his prayer. And you know what? I point that out. Why do I focus on that this morning? Because if that is how God deals with Jonah, if God is... If God is that merciful to Jonah that even in Jonah's self-righteous prayer, God shows him mercy, then there's hope for you and me today. God does not wait for you to get it all right for him to move in your life. If that were the case, we would all be hopeless. Amen? But there is a power in praying God's word back to him. And that's what we're going to focus on towards the end. I just wanted to begin to touch base with that, get that on your radar at the beginning. So let's look at this prayer, verse 2. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol here in verse 2, the place of the dead, Sheol, the grave, hell, these are all Terms that are used synonymously in the Old Testament, and uh, they refer to the same place. There's not multiple levels here. Uh, Those are erroneous doctrines that came about over uh, time and different churches that built this scheme of different layers of hell. No, these are synonymous terms. And then verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounding me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. It says, you cast me. Who cast Jonah into this situation? Well, in one sense, his sin did, but he's in this belly of fish because God is in control. God cast him there, and he acknowledges that. And what's powerful about understanding that is that Jonah is not at the mercy of the storm, the sailors, or the whale. Jonah is at the mercy of God. One commentator said, Paul never called himself a prisoner of Nero or Rome, but of Jesus Christ. Whatever is taking place in your life, it is so important for the child to understand, a child of God must understand that whatever is taking place in your life does not get to you unless it has first been filtered through your loving Heavenly Father. There is nothing taking place in your life that hasn't passed through God first. And there are very difficult things happening. We have some people that are going through health difficulties and family difficulties and things that I will just claim, I don't understand what God is doing in those. I don't understand. I don't have an answer for some of those things. And so when we don't have an answer for those things, we must go back to what we do know. And we know that God loves us and that God is the one that is in control. And whatever is in my life must first pass through him. And in his appointed time, he will have his way. 
And it is his strength that is currently bringing me through. It is his strength that brings us through. So verse 4, he says, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Cast out of your sight. Remember how Jonah started? He fled from the Lord's presence. He thought that his best interest was to get away from God. But having run from God, now he realizes that was his great mistake. And now he desires to be back in God's presence. The prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations says, God, it's only by your mercy that we're not consumed. When we go through trouble, the worst thing we can do is turn from God. We need him. It's his grace and mercy that's sustaining us in that moment. And so he says in verse 4 again that he's looking to the temple. Now the temple was a symbol of God's presence. Remember, Jonah started off running from God's presence. Now he's looking to the symbol of God's presence, saying that is where I am looking for my salvation. In the Old Testament, um, the temple meant so many things to the Jew. But when Solomon dedicated his temple, this temple that God allowed him to build, It was this mighty, majestic temple. It was this huge moment in the life of the nation of Israel. And as Solomon was praying to dedicate his temple to the Lord, he talked about the people and said, God, we we know ourselves that we're going to stray from you. And so when we stray and you have to discipline us, if we look to your temple the symbol of your presence, and we call out to you and we repent of our our sins. Will you hear us and will you restore us and will you bring us back to this place, God? And God answered that prayer with his presence filling the temple. And Jonah, as a Jew, he knew this. He knew he had strayed. He knew he had run from the presence of God. He knew he was in his own private exile. But he knew if he would look back to the presence of God, to the temple of God, that God would hear his cry and that God would restore him. And then verses 5 through 7, the water surrounded me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth and its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy what? There it is again, temple, into your holy temple. As you read this whole prayer, every commentator points out that this is so reminiscent of the Psalms. And what is very evident, we're going to bring this back later, is that Jonah knew the word of God. I mean, this prayer is like pulling lines out of the Psalms and just regurgitating some of David's Psalms back to the Lord. In fact, the verses I just read, verses 5, 6, and 7, uh, you can compare those to Psalm 118, just thematically, it sounds very similar. There are other places where they're synonymous. I mean, word for word, it's a a line out of the psalm. But Psalm 118, let me just read verses 4 through 6 to you. Psalm 118, verses 4 through 6. And again, it's important, and we're going to come back to this, to know that this prophet, he knew God's word. He's praying God's word. 
It says, let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in my distress and he answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, sounds very much like Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. But I want to look at some um, specifics of this prayer. Again, verse 6, he talks about going down to the pit. And again, this is synonymous with the grave or Sheol. But then he says in verse 6, O Lord, my God. And this is again Yahweh. Lord, the covenant-keeping, faithful God. My God, that he says. Can you say that when you're going through trouble? Do you say that? Do you cry out and say, God, I know that you are the faithful God, but you are also my God. And as my God who is faithful, I know that you will see me through. See, that was his hope, his confidence, even though he was still very messed up, very self-righteous, did not have a lot of things right, he at least knew that God was his only hope. He at least got that right. You know what? That is a great starting point. To acknowledge that there is a God who saves, the one and only God, who was and is and is to come, that is a great place to start if you're in trouble. And that's what he's doing. And then verse 7, it says that, he remembered the Lord. And his soul fainted. He remembered the Lord. This reminds me of the prodigal son. You remember, he went to his dad and said, Dad, I want you to give me my inheritance now. And he took it and he wasted it. The Bible says on prodigal living. He went to a far off country and he just threw parties and he wasted his entire inheritance. And then when he had run out of money, a famine came on the land. And he got so poor, it says, that he was serving a farmer feeding the pigs, and he desired to eat the pig slop. That's how bad it had gotten for him. But then it says when he got that low, it says, and then he came to his senses. He came to his senses. He remembered that at his father's house, even his father's servants were treated better than him. So he said, I'm going to go back home, and even if my dad would just let me be a slave in his house, I know I'll have it better than I do now. And so that prodigal son, he went home. He was returning home. And you remember what the father did? The father saw him from a distance. The father was waiting to receive him back home. The father didn't beat him up. The father didn't shame him. The father was rejoicing in one who was lost that was now found. But you remember the older brother? You see, I think Jonah is more like the older brother in that story. Yes, Jonah has come to his senses to some degree. He's remembering the Lord, but he still doesn't have a heart for the Ninevites. You know, when that prodigal son came home and the father was rejoicing, remember who was mad? The older brother. The older brother said, I can't believe my dad would throw a party for that younger brother of mine that's just been terrible. And the older brother was self-righteous, and he was angry at the father's goodness. And that's really more of who Jonah is. And his self-righteousness, he's trying to save his own skin, but he doesn't yet care about Nineveh. He doesn't really even care about what God's plan or purpose is. He just doesn't want to be in the belly of a fish anymore. And then verse 8, he says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Worthless idols. What do you think Jonah's worthless idol was? I mean, he's talking about himself. He's saying, I basically forsook the Lord and I pursued a worthless idol. And in doing that, I forsook my own mercy. 
What was his idol? Well, I think very clearly his idol was his self. God spoke to his man and said, this is what I want you to do. And Jonah said, I'm not doing it. That's just self. That is the heart of sin. Every sin in our life is us saying, God, that's not what I'm going to do. In your life, it may be something that you think is small. But all sin is against God and all sin is in essence telling God, that's not what I'm going to do. And so understanding sin correctly, we understand that there is no small sin. Because every thought that we have that is contrary to God's word is us telling God, I am not going to think what you want me to think. Every time that we are walking in sin, actively pursuing sin, we are telling God with our actions, I am not going to do what you want me to do. Every time we harbor things in our heart that we, are, we know are against God's will for our life, we are telling God, no, I'm going to do it my way. And when we truly understand the nature of sin, we understand there is no small sin. Every sin is an affront against the holiness of God and the blood of Jesus that has bought you to live for him. There is no small sin. That's why when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this so clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us. When we truly understand the love of God, we won't want to sin because we don't want to hurt the one that loves us so. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. I, if I have been <laughs> if I've died with Christ, as we saw pictured in baptism earlier, then how can I live in sin anymore? I've died with Christ. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That those who live should no longer live for what? Themselves. I think in many ways, if we were to put a motto to the American people right now, it would be living for ourselves. A nation that was founded on biblical principles has strayed far and wide from the things that made us great. And as individuals and families, we hold the answer. The answer is to begin to live ourselves not for ourselves but for the one who loved us and gave himself for us i can turn and gripe and complain about what everybody else is doing but if i'm living for myself i am part of the problem god's word says that he died for us all that those who live should no longer live for what themselves put your name there Jesus has died for me. My love for him compels me to understand that as I have died with him, that I no longer live for Paul Michael, 
but for him who died for me and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What that implies is that this creation that is new is no longer living for itself because it's new. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the new is living for Jesus and a love for him of who gave himself for us. And every time we live for ourselves is an affront to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jonah was doing. He was living for himself. And he said, those who regard worthless, idol, worthless idols forsake their own mercy. He realized that what he had done was he had taken that which was good for him and he had forsaken it. That means to abandon, to let loose, to send away. He's saying that which was the very best for me, I've cast it aside as if it was nothing. Forsake their own mercy. This is another very strong Hebrew word, mercy here. It's actually said. It speaks of God's covenant faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated as mercy. Sometimes it's translated as love. Sometimes it's translated as faithfulness. Words only have meaning within context. This is a very rich word that has a lot of different translations depending on the context. But it is speaking of God's covenant faithfulness where he is saying, you are my people. And you are eventually going to get that through your head no matter what I have to do for you to understand it. It means that God is committed to our holiness even when we're not. It means that God is committed to loving us even when we're unloving. It means that God wants our best interest in mind even when we think that we know better. God continues pursuing us. God continues loving us. And God will do in the life of a child of God what we need done. That's his mercy. That is his mercy. His mercy deals with us so that we'll quit forfeiting the blessings that come through obedience. And that's what he's doing with Jonah. God is being faithful to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, I love you too much to leave you in your rebellion. And so I've devised a storm. I've devised a whale. I've devised a miracle of three days and three nights to bring you to the place that I want you to be. The place where you'll know me, where you'll know my blessings. And he's not quite there yet, but he's getting there. He's getting there. And then verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. This sounds a whole lot like the uh, sailor's prayer in last chapter. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of an indictment because these heathen sailors got it before Jonah did. They were quicker to fear the Lord than God's prophet was. But again, it's interesting, Jonah's prayer here, he's ending with praise when he's talking about saving his own skin. But we'll see later when God saves the Ninevites, he's angry to the point of death. So again, I think this is a self-righteous prayer. But he does speak truth in it. He says salvation is of what? The Lord. So wherever his heart was, he at least knew what was true and right. That the Lord was the only one that could save him. And then our final verse for today, and we're going to really press it home in our remaining moments. 
It says, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. The Lord spoke to the fish. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) You know, all that we have is because God has spoken. God spoke this world into creation. Jesus is referred to as the living word of God, God's great communication to us. And so from God speaking everything into creation, from his Old Testament prophets, from Jesus coming to the early church, to the word of God, the canon of scripture that we now have, everything hangs on the fact that God has spoken, that God has spoken is everything. And here God speaks to a fish. What a privileged fish. God speaks to this fish and it vomits Jonah on dry ground. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Lovely. Vomited Jonah on dry ground. There is nothing fun about that. But it's interesting, he vomits Jonah onto what? Dry ground. He could have just thrown him in the ocean or somewhere else. I imagine, just in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if that fish spit him up in the certain way where he was pointed right at Nineveh when he got up. But man, what a sight he must have been. People believe that, uh, from others that have had apparently similar experiences, much shorter than that, that the digestive enzymes in a large fish would have bleached Jonah's skin. I mean, Jonah was the definition of a train wreck at this point. I mean, think about this guy. His skin was probably bleached to an off color. He was smelly. He was traumatized. He was hungry. He probably had not slept. I mean, you know, junior high boys on the last day of camp have nothing on Jonah at this point. I mean, Jonah was nasty. He was an absolute train wreck. In fact, his appearance, you know, he went right to Nineveh, and I think... That part of where Jesus says that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites was, I mean, Jonah showed up looking like such a freak show that he immediately got an audience. They were like, what is this guy doing? Look at this guy. And so he gets vomited up from this fish, and he's on dry land. And again, who's in control this whole time? Not Jonah, not the rebellious prophet. God is. God puts him right where he needs to be and where he needs to be, and when he needs to be. But you know, again, the key, as we bring this to a close, and we, and we try to drive it home more to our lives today, I just realized I don't think I gave you the title today. The title of today's sermon is Pray the Right Thing, and that's what we're going to hone in on. Last week, we looked at Fear the Right Thing. Do you remember that? We talked about the importance of Scripture memorization, that you can't Claim the promises of God you don't know. You can't take up the weapon that's not in your arsenal. And so we looked at the importance of Scripture memorization. And many of you texted me or emailed me about what an impact that had on you. And it actually let me know verses that you were working on memorizing this week. And that's wonderful. That is encouraging. The next step to that is not only to know God's Word, but then also to know how to pray God's Word. So last week we looked at fearing the right thing. This week I want to just with the remaining time we have, talk to you about how to pray the right thing. And three lessons from Jonah's prayer that we get. Number one, Jonah appealed to God on the basis of his promises. 
So even though Jonah was most likely self-righteous, not really right with God at this point, he knew God's word enough, he knew the right things to pray. He knew the right God to pray out to, and he is appealing to God on what God has said, on the promises of God. That's what Jonah is praying. He's saying, God, I know that you have said this, therefore I am appealing to you on what you've already said, on your promises. I'm appealing to you, God, But your faithfulness, again, remember he was a Jew, and Solomon in that temple dedication, he knew, God, we're going to stray from you. But when we do, if we return to your temple and we pray, will you heal us? Will you restore us? And in Jonah's prayer here twice, he talks about looking to the temple. He knew. He knew what was right to do. And he appeals to God's faithfulness. He knew that God said that if my people will return to me and look to my temple and pray, then I will restore them. So even in his sin, he knows the right thing to do, and he appeals to God's faithfulness. But the only way that Jonah could do that, don't miss the point, is because he first knew God's word. And so one of the best ways to boost your prayer life is to first get God's word in your heart. God's word will help you know what to pray. You see, Jonah is praying in a way that he's appealing to God's faithfulness as God has revealed it through his word. But second of all, Jonah prayed the word. He directly prayed God's word. I want you to think about that. And I'm going to show you how to do that as we close in just a moment. Do you pray God's word? Is that a part of your just flow of your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. You have been saved from death to life. You have been filled with God's spirit. You have been given God's word, God's instruction for how we are to live. You have God's spirit to lead you in how to pray. Do you pray God's word? Again, I'm going to explain the portions of that more as we close in just a moment. But much of Jonah's prayer was just quoting Psalms. Look at Jonah 2.2. Uh, verse 2, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now flip over to Psalm 18.6. Psalm 18.6. Listen to this. Again, much of Jonah's prayer is just a quoting of different psalms. In my distress I called upon the Lord. And cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. Over and over again, Jonah's prayer is reciting the Psalms back to God. That is his prayer. But again, in order to pray God's word, what do you first have to do? It's not rocket science. You have to what? Know it. You have to know it. The third thing about Jonah's prayer life that we can learn from, even though he was still messed up, is this. The Word of God gives warrant to our prayers. Warrant to our prayers. What do I mean by warrant? Well, a simple definition of warrant is a justification for an action. A justification for an action. So what I'm saying is that because God had spoken, Jonah had a, listen, a reason to pray. If we did not have God's promises, we would not have much confidence in our prayer life. But because God has spoken, I want you to make this connection so bad this week. Because God has spoken, we have something to pray about. 
We have promises to claim. We have hope to cling to. We have direction in this life because God has given us his word. But again, how do you pray God's word? You know, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So again, you have to get God's word in your heart so that you can believe it and pray it and you can put it out there. So I promise you I'd show you how to do that. So let me do that and then we're going to bring it to an end. I remember there was a difficult time in my life and each morning I woke up. As soon as I woke up, before I did anything else, I began to pray Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Listen to me. Every morning as I woke up, I just quoted that first thing. Before I got out of bed, before I rolled over, I just quoted that. I began to pray that, Lord, Thank you that your word says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Thank you, God, that today I can trust you. Thank you, God, that today I can lean on you. Thank you, God, that I don't have to trust my will, my way, my wisdom, my understanding. I can rely on you and you will direct me this day. That is praying God's word back to him. And you know what that did? That each morning set my mind on truth. What that was doing was that was me waking up to fight the spiritual battle we call life. And that was me throwing a haymaker in Satan's face to start my day. That was saying, I reject the lies of Satan. I reject the lies of this world. I choose God's word and I'm going to focus my mind on the promises of God. And despite what I feel or what other people say to me or about me, God will direct my steps this day. That's praying God's word. Believer, do you understand the nuclear weapons that God has put at your disposal when you pray his word? You have an arsenal in God's word when you begin to memorize it, take it into your heart, and pray it. What about Psalm 121? We've been in the Psalms. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot slip. He, he watches over you, neither slumbers nor sleeps. When I'm afraid, I can say, God, you're my keeper, and you neither, neither slumber nor sleep. You're watching over me all the time. Therefore, I can trust in you. But I can only pray that prayer if I first know Psalm 121. Or what about the 23rd Psalm? I've said that to some of our church family recently. At the end of this last year, we had several deaths. And several times I found myself quoting to people Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a bold statement David makes. Then a face of death, I can pray, God, you are my shepherd. Therefore... There is no good thing that I will lack because you watch over me. Do you pray like that? Do you have God's word in your heart enough to be able to pray like that? The child of God has the power of God and the word of God to defeat the enemies of God as we pray his word. It's right there. And it's time for us to take it up and to put it to work. Amen?
So these are three things that we learn from Jonah's prayer. And again, I believe it helps inform us how to pray the right thing. If Jonah and even his self-righteousness could get through to God by quoting God's words back to him, then I believe there's hope for us today. The last promise of God I want to close with is Romans 10, 13, that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. God has promised to those who turn from their way, like Jonah, to some degree at least, who turn from their way and turn to him, who look to him as their savior, he has promised to do just that, to save you to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into a right relationship with him, and to help you to live for him from this day forward. And that is all because of Christ. He's come and he's died and he's risen. He's going to return one day. And in God's love, he will transform you and you will be a new creation as we talked about earlier. But it begins by turning from your way, by looking to God and taking him at the promise of his word that whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. It's not based on your feelings. It's based on trusting God to do what he's promised to do. Would you please stand with me this morning as we bring our time together to a close? We have a song of invitation, a song of response. We are responding to the God of his word and the word of God. To say, God, you have spoken. And therefore, we have something to hope in. We have something to believe in. We have something to cling to. And we do just that. God, because you have spoken, we direct our lives according to what you have said. God, because you have spoken, salvation is today. If there are anyone here that has not yet put your faith in Christ, I believe the fact that you're even here today is evidence that God is drawing, that he loves you, he's brought you to this point, and he wants you to, just like that son, to come to your senses and to return to the Father. I would love to talk to you more about that this morning. I would love to kneel down right here as you call upon the Lord to be saved. But maybe for some of us we realize we've just been spiritually lazy. We don't know God's word enough to pray it. You know what? Especially in the days of Google, we are without excuse. Anything that you are struggling with spiritually, Google it. Bible verses 4 and it'll give you 50 Bible verses. You're without excuse. So get to Googling. Make some three-by-five cards. Put them in your pocket. Put them up around your house. Start getting God's Word in here and in here. And start sending those nukes back to hell. Right? And start fighting the battle God's given you to fight. And start embracing the victory that God has for you in Jesus. I'm going to pray Let's just obey the Lord and see what he wants to do. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you so much that you are good and you have given us the victory. Forgive us for how we've lived in defeat just because we've been spiritually lazy and soft. I pray that we would take up your, God, your word and that we would start to apply your word and we would live your word and we would love your word, be saturated with it, and that we would do what Jesus did, that we would combat Satan with your word. Even Jesus in his temptation showed us how to be victorious. Jesus quoted your word back to Satan. May we really take that to heart. May we walk in that victory that you have for us, Lord. 
Thank you that this moment that you've given us, this is your grace. You're giving us an opportunity to return, to grow, to press into you more. This is mercy right now in this moment. May we give you the glory for it. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.